What's up everybody and welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now where we cover how the environment, our society and corporate governance affects and are affected by our economy. I'm your host Mike DiCibato and this week we have one big topic for you, the oil and gas sector and the big shareholder and legal rules that are set to shift the known paradigm for how the energy sector operates. Thanks as always for joining us. Stay tuned. Oh boy, things done been stirred up in the energy sector this week. I'm going to give you a quick list of them. First, a Dutch court ordered Shell to slash CO2 emissions further than the relatively ambitious goal it already promised in what was being called a landmark climate ruling. Then, Chevron investors on Wednesday voted in favor of a proposal to cut emissions generated by the use of its company's products, aka Scope 3 emissions. This also happened at ConocoPhillips, where its shareholders rebuffed the company's board and voted that it also needs to set and reduce its scope three emissions. And in the biggest news this week, maybe of the year when it comes to climate and fossil fuels in the energy sector, activist investor Engine Number One, which is an upstart hedge fund basically, led a successful activist campaign against ExxonMobil, getting enough shareholder support for at least two of its nominees to Exxon's board of directors, which now numbers 12. The two new board members are Gregory Goff and Kaisha Haitella. And this is pretty wild because usually Exxon doesn't really need to respond to investor pressure when it comes to their strategy on climate change. And engine number one owns about 0.02% of Exxon shares, which isn't a lot. But its proposal for new board members was backed by the 460 billion US dollar California Public Employees Retirement System, the 291 billion California State Teachers Retirement System, and the 247 billion New York State Common Retirement Fund. Their backing turned this into both the most expensive proxy battle on record and a possibly career-shaking blow to the re-elected board member and CEO of Exxon, Darren Woods, who personally campaigned against Engine Number no. 1's four board nominees. The question for us now is, what do all these loud moves mean? Two directors at Exxon out of 12, uh, a majority does not make. Just because Chevron and ConocoPhillips are reporting on their Scope 3 emissions does not mean they're any closer to becoming carbon neutral. And there is definitely going to be an appeal from Shell on the Dutch court's ruling. By the way, we did not give the Shell story as much time as it deserves. It's a landmark case, and the ruling can have wide global implications because it not only applies to Shell, but it applies to its suppliers. And it covers not only the company's emissions, but it also covers the products burned by its customers. The thing is, is that we wanted to wait to revisit it in full after Shell's appeal process became more apparent. But we do touch on it, and it's part of these three stories that are nothing less than a deep structural rift occurring in the oil industry. And to assess it, I called up three of my colleagues that are much more knowledgeable about these type of energy moves than I am. And in order of appearance, I talked to Harlan Tufford, our governance guru, Chris Coates, one of our energy sector analysts, alongside Antonios Panagiotopoulos, another energy sector expert on our team. And first, Harlan started us off by putting the ambitions of engine number one, the small hedge fund that took on Exxon into perspective. So, I mean, it is it is an incredible uh, David and Goliath story, but you have to put the 
outcome here in the context of what engine number one was actually trying to do. And engine number one is goal. It's, it's, its goal is not to win a proxy contest. Its goal is to change Exxon's strategy, right? And the proxy contest is the means to that end. Um, if you actually go to the very first thing that Exxon or that, that engine published back in, in, I think December of 2020, uh, they, they were asking for, uh, Exxon to, to appoint, uh, their, their nominees and they didn't, they didn't want a proxy contest. And again, the, the, the goal was not to change the shape of the board. That's, that's the, the, the means here. The goal is to change how Exxon does business. And, and part of this comes down to looking at, you know, what, what do investors want boards to, to do for companies like this? What, who should be on those boards? If you, if you look at the the kind of pre AGM composition of Exxon's board. This is, you know, by a lot of traditional methodologies, uh, you know, AAA board for an American, a large American company, right? There there are tons of people on this board who have led, um, you know, multinational organizations who've been accomplished senior CEOs, um, who bring tremendous expertise and, and experience to their role, but they are not, at least in the views of Engine, uh, they are not oil and gas transition experts. And that's that that expertise and that vision is is what Engine thinks uh, Exxon needs and, and who they think needs to be on the board making decisions. And it's the decisions that those people will make in their view that will, will uh, change the future of this company and, and allow it to be an, en- an engine of growth. Ah, I see what you did there. Uh, but do you think these new directors were ac- will actually be successful in shaping Exxon's business strategy? Yeah, well, whether or not these new directors are going to be successful in, in shaping Exxon's policy will really come down to candid boardroom dynamics that we just can't access through disclosure. Uh, the other directors may be shaken into action by the scale of, of Engine's victory, or they may take a reactionary stance, or perhaps most likely there will be a gradual meeting of minds and a, a shift toward a new consensus. But whatever happens, we won't know until we see the changes, uh, or the lack thereof, in the months to come. And yes, those changes might be hard fought. The two new directors join a board that, by Harlan's analysis, is at the lower end when it comes to oil industry expertise compared to its peers. For Exxon's current board, only about 20% of its members brought previous oil and gas expertise to Exxon when initially joining the board. That is also true for its peers Total, Chevron, Petrobras, and Shell, who are all under the industry average of around 40%. But different to its peers is that Exxon has been pursuing a strategy weighted heavily toward growing upstream exploration, such as opening new drilling sites. Basically, Exxon has been pushing to drill more, even as the return on capital for those projects continued to fall to near negative levels, which has caused it to amass a considerable amount of debt in order to pay dividends to shareholders to try and placate dissent. But that strategy can only work for so long, and now it seems that investors are worried that Exxon is blind to the future of the energy markets. And that's been enhanced by the fact that it posted a $22 billion U.S. dollar loss in 2020. And according to my colleague Chris Coates, you have this situation now where a shareholder base seems to have lost confidence in the company leadership. Implicit in this vote is the intense focus on downstream expertise in refining and marketing. So the successful nominations of the two new uh, directors, Goff and Hitala, 
they, they've focused their careers on downstream expertise and actually have shifted themselves from upstream to downstream, right, to refining and marketing. Um, so Goff, as CEO at Endeavor, and previously Tesoro, led, uh, you know, a, a, a transformation of that company and Hitala as executive vice president at, at Neste, which is the largest producer in the world of, of renewable diesel fuel um, and, and is a refining and marketing company on its own. Uh, they're bringing you know two new voices to the to the board focused on on refining and marketing and not on upstream expenditure. So I think that's one significant shift that's happened. So to really understand why this happened, you have to think of upstream oil production, aka the extraction of oil, as a sloping up bar chart. And you have the cost per barrel on your left axis. And you have all the big oil majors on that bar chart. And some, like Saudi Aramco, are all the way to the left because it can get its oil out of the ground at four US dollars a barrel. And then you have Rosneft, a Russian oil giant, and it can get its oil out of the ground for about six US dollars a barrel. But it costs Exxon at the moment around nine US dollars a barrel. And that doesn't seem like a lot of a difference. But if the, for example, the International Energy Agency's prediction that oil is going to peak soon due to the general push by everyone to lower carbon emissions, if we were to trust that, then there is a finite amount of demand left for oil. And oil Buying oil isn't like going to a brewery. You can't tell what type of oil you're really getting. So people will turn their back on companies like Exxon, it's argued, in favor of a cheaper substitute. Now that nine US dollar per barrel cost for Exxon doesn't account for the new and likely cheaper assets it's developing in Guyana and Brazil, but we're not gonna go into that because the point was made how it was made. And engine number one said to Exxon investors, do you want to continue to bet on a company that is avoiding the truth? of the market or do you want to own a company that is moving into the future? And engine number one was able to give examples to investors of companies in other regions that they think have pursued a more profitable and long-term strategy uh, compared to Exxon. So European oil majors that have had more success with their climate strategies, Shell, BP, you know, these are companies that uh, not all agree that they've uh, sort of set the, the best strategies possible. And we'll talk about that. But they have set industry-leading climate strategies at this point. And part of that is is an increased focus on the downstream at the expense of the upstream. They're focusing more on petrochemical integration, renewable diesel, um, refining in general, and have set dates on the peak value or the peak date of their own oil and gas production. Okay, so here's where it all gets a bit weird with regards to the climate, because it's not like the downstream part of the oil and gas industry is green. Downstream production is where oil is made into stuff and uh, shipped around the world. It's the part of the industry that makes, as Chris noted, petrochemicals like plastics. But it is the sector of the industry where there is the largest forecast of growth in oil demand. Uh, and to acknowledge this and to move away from the upstream part of the oil sector would be an acknowledgement of the change in how the world feels about the carbon emitted from fossil fuels. And if there's one thing that this proxy season seems to have shown is that the world really wants oil companies to better account for carbon emissions because Exxon's board wasn't the only one to face investor backlash during this proxy season. There was also Chevron and ConocoPhillips and that coincided with this legal challenge brought against Royal Dutch Shell. So I want to get a broader perspective on all this and how it all ties together. And so to do that, I called up Antonios Panagiotopoulos and I asked him to kind of broaden the lens for us. And he thought one of the biggest changes he has seen this year was the focus on a company's scope three emissions. 
We have seen that investors are increasingly interested for these companies to measure and potentially reduce their scope three emissions. So eventually their their product emissions, the products that they are selling. Now, this has been um, a taboo uh, uh, space for a lot of the oil and gas companies for many years because it uh, essentially sits outside their operational control. Uh, however, any impact or any reduction in scope three essentially means that you're losing your market share. So in a recent paper that we published, uh, most of the energy companies are not uh, targeting their scope three emissions, essentially missing out on the biggest, uh, on average, 87% of an oil and gas company's uh, uh, footprint lies within the scope three or their product emissions. So therefore, by not setting a target on scope three emissions, uh, you are uh, essentially leaving a bit part of your footprint uh, outside your uh, your remit or your strategy. Investors have said, we don't want you to omit those emissions anymore from your reports. We want you to tell us about them. And that desire has now been put to Chevron and ConocoPhillips. Another incredible action taken against the oil industry this week is the landmark ruling against Dutch Royal Shell by a Dutch court ordering it to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030. It was a lawsuit brought by a group of seven environmental organizations and more than 17 thousand Dutch citizens who were the co-plaintiffs. I asked Antonios what he thought about this move by the Netherlanders. The court ruling on Shell uh, is, a, is an interesting one because uh, Shell had already declared a net zero target. Uh, it's just that the, the Dutch court feels that the period of 2020 to 2030, they're actually advising or they're urging Shell to cut down 45% of their overall footprint. So that is a, a dramatic shift on the company, on the oil and gas company uh, uh, business segment. So uh, Shell will, uh, they have already been investing in uh, wind uh, and solar, uh, uh, solar energy power generation. However, uh, this shift will need to uh, uh, accelerate dramatically if they are to meet uh, the, the Dutch court uh, ruling. And look, it has to be said, these are all connected. The move against Exxon's board, the rebuke at Chevron and ConocoPhillips, the suit filed by Shell. Groups are starting to amass credible challenges against the oil industry that once seemed invulnerable to challenge. Harlan ran the numbers on Exxon, and they've gotten around 45 shareholder proposals since 2015. That is the third most shareholder proposals put to a company globally. And before this successful vote to change their board, the entity that directs the long-term strategy of a company, only two of those proposals had gotten enough votes to pass. And the thing is, it's not like the oil companies weren't worried about some of what was coming down the pike. In March of this year, some oil giants, including ConocoPhillips, moved to try to get the SEC to allow them to omit votes on climate change proposals at their annual general meetings. But at the time, President Biden was already in office and there was a new head of the SEC who pushed back on this report. And even the International Energy Agency, or the IEA, which is often a more neutral supporter of fossil fuels, they put out a report this year that said, in order for humanity to meet its net zero targets, we should not fund any new oil, gas, and coal supply projects beyond 2021. And I want to be frank here about these stories because, you know, relative to some of my colleagues, uh, I haven't been in this game for all that long. And so I didn't really 
know how to take this ruling when I got up this morning. But I just, I saw all these emails from colleagues that have been doing this for a long time and they kind of felt flabbergasted. They didn't know if they could believe that Exxon actually lost two board seats to a tiny activist head fund uh, just because of its stance on climate change and that a European court also ruled against Shell uh, regarding its position on climate change. And then there were these Chevron votes and the ConocoPhillips votes. I mean, a lot of people have been talking about the move away from fossil fuels for what seems like a very long time at this point. And I said seismic rift earlier, and I really do, I mean, that might be a bit cliche, but I really do feel uh, especially having to talk to people that have been dealing with this for such a long time, that these moves are extremely significant and should not be underplayed throughout the news cycle or the fact that there is a lot of murmurs around companies promising things that uh, sometimes don't get done, sometimes do get done. I think from hearing people's reactions around the industry, this is a big change. And that's it for the week. I wanted to thank Harlan and Chris and Antonios for joining me to discuss this week's news with an ESG twist. I want to thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, subscribe. And if you like ESG now, don't forget to check out the MSCI Perspectives podcast. Uh, you can find that wherever you find ESG now. Here is the topic for this week. Hi, everyone. This is Adam Bass host of the MSCI Perspectives podcast. The rollout of vaccines means that, in the West anyway, we've officially arrived at the cusp of the post-pandemic world of work. Now, will the new business as usual look the same as we remember it? We'll explore that topic on this week's episode. Join us and listen in on the discussion wherever you listen to podcasts. The MSCI ESG Research podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to and or received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotion or recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or produ product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.